Well, welcome, church, to our very first uh, look in the book, the new name for our Wednesday night study time together. I want to launch into a series. It was nice having you see the staff and some of their thoughts on different issues. I want to come back to a study. What comes to your mind when you think about God? What comes to your mind when you think about God? I don't, I don't use the old King James very much for uh, kind of serious study of the text, but every once in a while there are verses that uh, just ring so poetic and beautifully worded. And I was looking at Job 22.21, and it says, Acquaint now thyself with him, that is God, acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. And I think uh, A.W. Tozer kind of hit the nail on the head summarizing that verse when he said, years ago, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think what, what he's trying to say is there's no uh, spiritual experience, no faith, no practice can rise above the idea that we hold in our mind about God. I mean, it, it's possible if Tozer's right, if that verse is right, it's possible to live large slices of the Christian life with, with good intention, but just, just going through the externals, be it worship or prayer or church attendance or Bible study or, or acts of charity, going through these acts with more focus on the act we're involved in rather than the idea of God that we hold as we do those things. And the idea of God is, is the fuel, the energy, the life. That's, that's what Tozer is saying. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Listen to Tozer again. He says this, it's impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate, so untrue or just too small, too limited, not growing up with our Christian walk. Then he says, if we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, okay, that's a goal. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. To think of God more nearly as he is. So I can hold ideas about God that aren't adequate, that aren't accurate, that don't describe God as he really is. Let, let me, let me try to, let me try to frame up how important I really think this is. My concept of God, my understanding of God, the, if you want to use the word, the theology that I have built up over the years, my understanding of God, it fuels everything else about my Christian life. That's what Tozer is saying. Is that true? Well, I think we can, we can test it. Think about worship. 
adequate thoughts about God, big thoughts about God, are to worship what roots are to a plant. Worship is more theological and less psychological than many people think. If, if my understanding of God is limited, small, then what will happen is when I get together, of course, now we can't, but I'm in this big room and there's a whole bunch of people and we're all worshiping God. What, what will carry my heart into worship if my thoughts about God are too small or inadequate or not growing? I'm going to hope that, well, they do the right song. There are certain songs that just move me. And, and so I will, I will hope that there will be the emotional quality. The worship band, the musicians, they're up here, they lead in worship. But here's the problem. The average, the average song, and I, I, I'm not criticizing anything. I'm talking about hymns, many of them, and I'm talking about worship songs. The average song does not have enough content about God, deep thinking about God, to to uplift my heart and sustain beefy worship. And so I'm going to, I'm going to try to worship harder to make my feelings about God grow in the act of worship. But that's the wrong way to do it. The songs, the music, they don't create the worship. My understanding of God is what I bring into worship, and the worship time expresses what I've already stored up in my heart in terms of a deep understanding about God. So I'm not trying to work something up. I'm reflecting on what I know to be true about God, and it gets expressed in times of worship with the body of Christ. Worship is theological, not psychological. Or think about faith. So we talked about worship. Faith. Where, where does faith come from? A lot of people go through their whole Christian life reading books about faith, studying the subject of faith, Thinking that if they, if they just latch on to the power of faith, they will, they will see God at work more in their lives. And faith doesn't grow that way. You, you can't, you can't build your faith by studying faith. You, you build your faith by studying God. Faith in God is it's like the trust you have in a babysitter. Think of it that way. A babysitter that you've used over and over again. A reliable babysitter whom you know and you trust because you've had him or her at your house dozens of times. You know, you know what this person is like. You know how they act. You know how they think. You know they can be trusted in difficult situations because they've been there before when something's come up and they handled it well. You, you don't make yourself trust that babysitter. You have grown to trust her 
because you know her. And that's exactly the way faith works. You can't get strong faith studying faith. You get strong faith studying God. Or here's something else. So worship, faith, your prayer life. Prayer, prayer can get, uh, boy, it can get pretty stuffy, pretty cold, pretty external when it's just performed as a religious duty or a religious exercise. It was never meant to be that. It was, it was meant to be a relationship with someone you've come to know, someone you understand. The trouble is we, we get it all backwards. We work hard at becoming good prayers rather than working harder at understanding the character and the heart and the nature of, of God. See, in all of this, remember that quote, Tozer says, it's impossible to keep our moral practices sound or our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin, here's the starting point, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. The Bible says there are tremendous blessings to simply knowing what God is like. Proverbs 9 and 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Or here's here's some verses you probably know from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. The prophet says, as the Lord speaks through him, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Okay, so there's the negatives. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. All right. So all that by kind of introduction. It is terribly important. Here's the myth. People say, oh, no, no, I don't want to get this theology. Don't give me this theology stuff. Give me practical stuff. And if what Tozer says is true, the practical stuff without the knowledge of God isn't going to carry anybody very far. We need to think deep, true thoughts about God. So we're going to do a series for the next little while, dusting off some uh, gigantic, basic pillars that have to be in place if we're going to know God. I'm going to start with just one tonight, okay? Because I've, I've kind of introduced it for a while. Just one characteristic. So I'm saying point number one, but there is just one. Our God is the creator and sustainer of everything that exists. So theologians will use some bigger words like self-existence or self-sufficiency. And what we mean by that is God has no origin, no beginning. Everything that begins has another cause. 
I said everything that begins. But God has no beginning, no starting point. Everything but God comes from somewhere at some time or something. Everything, but not God. So we've nailed down right now one of the things. Here's how you know when you're talking about God. If what you're talking about has any kind of a beginning point, it isn't God. Now, our minds really aren't uh, equipped to deal with that. When, when you start thinking about eternity, if you've ever done it, you, your brain just kind of goes fuzzy around the edges because, because we weren't designed to comprehend that which is timeless and eternal. And this is, this is one of the things that, that uh, man rebels against. This idea of God's self-existence and self-sufficiency. Tozer writes again, listen to this. This is why man is uneasy with God. Philosophy and science have not always been friendly toward the idea of God. The reason being that they are dedicated to the task of accounting for things and are impatient with anything that refuses to give an account of itself. The philosopher and the scientist will admit that there is much that they do not know. But that is quite another thing from admitting that there is something which they can never know, which indeed they have no technique whatsoever for discovering. To admit that there is one who lies beyond us, who exists outside all of our categories, who will not be dismissed with a name, who will not appear before the bar of our reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries. This requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess. So we have to save face by thinking God down to our level, down to where we can somehow manage him. Jesus talked about the Father, and he said in John 5, 26, the Father, the Father has life in himself. That is different from, from everything else. We all, we all, uh, we run on batteries, limited time, wear out. Everything does, not God. The, the Bible, um, the Bible, this must be important because the Bible just repeats this and drills down into it with, uh, relentless clarity and repetition. I was just looking at some of these verses. Uh, get a Bible and look at 1 John, sorry, John's Gospel 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Or Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. One more. Hebrews 1, 3. 
Speaking of Jesus again, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, so, Pastor, now why are you going over this? The self-sufficiency, the self-existence, this eternal nature of God, uncaused, unmade, always there. Why are you hammering away at this? And here's why. It's, it's, it's not just dull theology. There's a practical side to it. And, and here it is. This understanding of God's self-existence, his self-sufficiency, understanding that is very important because it's, it's precisely here at this one single point that the real nature of sin, my sin, your sin, that the real nature of sin gets defined. See, here's the myth. Well, sin is just doing like really bad stuff. So committing adultery, murder, stealing, lying. There, those are sins. Well, they, they are and they aren't. They're actually the fruit of a particular sin that gets manifested right at this point. Because man is created and is not independent and is not like God in that he's not sovereign, he's not self-sufficient, When man forgets this, when he's mindless that he is a creature made by a self-existent, self-sufficient creator. When man forgets this, it's not just like forgetting where he put his keys. This, when he forgets this, it, it messes everything up. It, 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 it disintegrates a life with God. It, it, it ruins something at the core of our being. And here's the way the Bible describes it. Isaiah 53, 6. Maybe the best definition of sin ever. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned. Everyone, no exceptions to this. We have turned everyone to his own way. Not, not a bad way turned everyone to his own way. And fortunately, the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That's substitution, penal substitution. My iniquity is on Jesus. But the interesting words I want to focus on are these words, we've, we've gone astray, the prophet says. Gone astray from what? I mean, those words imply something. Well, We've turned from a, a right path, the way we were designed to exist. What have we done wrong? Well, we were never meant to go our own way. We're not self-defining creatures. We are created beings dependent upon God. He is the self-sufficient, self-existing, sovereign one. We aren't. But when we, when we turn to our own way, like we have the right to self-governance. Even if we don't do anything bad, that's the heart of sin. Self-governance is the heart of all sin. That's turning to our own way. And all those other sins that you might expect to be listed there when you're talking about sin, they're just the fruit 
the result of this sin taking the place of God in our own hearts and governing ourselves. So sin isn't, first of all, not first of all being wicked. Sin is, first of all, pretending to be sovereign. It's turning to our own way. It's becoming um, self-determiners. Man who only has breath as God lends it, who's like the grass of the field that just gets cut down. That one, that one, who disappears, James says, like a mist on the highway. This one pretends, this one pretends he rules and controls and chooses. And so this idea of the self-existence of God, the creator, that's the background against which my transgression suddenly becomes uh, offensive, illogical, self-destructive. I know I've read him a couple of times, but just listen to Tozer one more time. He says, from all this, we begin to understand why the Holy Scriptures have so much to say about the vital place of faith and why they brand unbelief as a deadly sin. Among all created beings, no one dare trust in itself. God alone trusts in himself. All other beings must trust in him. Unbelief is actually perverted faith, for it puts its trust not in the living God, but in dying men. The unbeliever denies the self-sufficiency of God and usurps attributes that are not his. This dual sin dishonors God and ultimately destroys the soul of man. So this entire series, we're going to be studying what God is like. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so as we look at the character of God, this is what will fuel your worship and make it beefy. This is what creates faith. This is what deepens prayer. This is what does it all. So the old King James, Job 22, acquaint thyself with him and good shall come unto thee. Join us. I'll look at the book. Wednesday nights as we study our great, wonderful, and glorious God. Let's pray. We thank you for your word. We, we have no way of really knowing what we need to know without your word. And so as we study it in these times when we're apart, just unite and draw our hearts and minds together. Heat up our minds with big truths about God that will feed every other part of our Christian walk. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. Call somebody. Wednesday nights, 7 o'clock. Love one another, church.